All right. Welcome back to the Beyond the Swing podcast. Um, been a while since we, we had an episode, but uh, back here and I've got an awesome guest, uh, Martin Bisinger. Really excited to have Martin on, on the podcast. I've been following Martin since probably about uh, 2013, I think it was, or so, you know, following his work and a lot of the stuff he does. He's He's a hammer coach, was a hammer thrower, I believe, or maybe still is. He, he'll, he'll let us know in a minute here. And uh, I just find a lot of the applications from, from that world can translate a lot into, into rotational sports and obviously tennis. So, um, you know, developing core strength and rotational strength and using different sorts of methods that, um, you know, we can kind of take from the hammer world or the track and field world. So I think Martin has some really great insights there. Um, and then some other topics that we're going to discuss, but Martin, welcome. Glad to have you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So I've been following your stuff as well for a while. And um, yeah, the hammer throw was my main sport as an athlete. I'm, I'm just on the coaching side now and doing a lot of strength conditioning for other sports. But when I was a kid, one of my first sports was tennis. So there's still uh, a kind of soft spot in my heart. Played that throughout elementary school and middle school. And, and I'm a big tennis fan as well. Um, obviously, living in Switzerland, you got to be a fan of Roger. Um, but I like to follow the sport still to this day. Yeah, yeah. I was actually going to mention that you're from Switzerland and easy to, to like tennis over the last 20 years. <laughs> exactly. Swiss had a lot of success there. So hopefully we see Roger back. I think he's, he's, uh, he's been training again. So, um, so are you, are you still throwing yourself or are you, are you, I haven't the last time I competed, it was at the 2020 Swiss championships, but even then for the past four or five years, I've done it more as a hobby. Uh, I'll compete for fun, but not at the level where I'm expecting international results or anything like that. It's just a, it's a sport. Same with a lot of tennis players. If you play competitively your whole life, it's hard to just stop. You want to, you know, just do it. Even if it's just for fun every once in a while. So I, I've done that a bit. And uh, as I've gotten, it, my training groups got bigger and bigger. There's been less time to really focus on it. And also I, I, the dynamic is a bit strange. Once you start having athletes that get better and competing and surpassing you, I don't like to have that kind of conflict of interest where I'm competing against my own, my own athletes. So I'm more than happy to step aside and let them have the limelight. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I, I still like to, to mix it up with some of my players and I, I see when, if I, if I get a game or two there and they get pretty, pretty annoyed, but um, it's, it's all in good fun. I did want to mention to, to listeners that you do have a pretty uh, well-developed actually blog and, and site called Hammer Media. I think I believe you started blogging, it says on your site in tw uh, 2007 and Hammer Media sort of started officially in, in about 2013. Is that correct? That's around that. I don't remember the dates exactly, but 2007, I definitely started my own personal blog and just started kind of chronicling my own training as an athlete. Um, some thoughts I had on training and technique and what I was learning from my coach at the time, Anatoly Bonerchuk, who was new to North America, the ideas people had some ideas of, but no one had really talked about training with them firsthand. So that's how it started. And then over the years, readership grew. Um, some other athletes, I knew I wanted to hear their viewpoint. So I expanded it and started inviting other coaches and athletes to share their perspectives on the site. So it grew from kind of a personal blog about my own training to now it's a, you know, a website with articles, videos, podcasts about 
mm-hmm. just training and coaching across any, any sport. I mean, it's becoming a better athlete and understanding the the performance, you know, issues we try to face and help helping athletes get better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm kind of curious because I have a blog, as as some listeners will know. Um, what's the process like for you? Like, do you you have a regular schedule in terms of your own writing and, and blogging. Um, you know, what's that like? I mean, part, part of um, why I also started to expand it beyond just me was I, I never wanted to get the blog to the point where it felt like, Oh, I need to do a post today because I have to have X number of posts per week or X number of posts per month. I don't want to force content out there. Yeah. And now we have probably, you know, we, we try to get two new pieces on the site a week and I've got probably 30 different contributors. You know, some might contribute once per year, some contribute once per month. But if we spread the load enough, we can find content without really having to have anyone really forced to do it. And then that we can rely on, okay, I'm, I'm really inspired about this topic. I have something to share. I want to go out there. So some weeks, I, some months, I won't even write anything. I'm doing more editing. Um, other months, like in February here, we're focusing on track and field throws, which is my area. And I, I plan to write a couple articles and did, did a few videos as well but if we're doing something on uh you know a sport or an area outside of my purview rehabilitation or something like that you know, I might not contribute anything uh, more just they're organizing and trying to use my contacts to find out who could contribute something edit you know make sure the tone of voice and the the um, the audience articles aimed at the the right audience um so that that's kind of my own process for writing but yeah as I said it's, it's morphed into more of an editorial type of role over the years and I'm still probably spending time each day with the different contributors the podcasts are more of a weekly routine uh, scheduling guests and editing and recording so that's that's the more regular um, routine I have on that side yeah it's interesting to hear that and when I started blogging and more heavily in 2017 we were actually living in in Germany at the time. So, um, and my wife was transferred over there. So I had a little bit more time. I was working with a couple athletes, German athletes, but I had a little more time. So I was kind of pumping out articles, uh, uh, almost every week. I think the first year I wrote like 40 something articles and that, that really was tough to sustain over, over the years. Exactly. And that's the, you know, you want to, we were talking about this beforehand, you want to have consistent content i mean as a coach or you know a business owner you you need to put stuff out there to keep yourself relevant but at the same time you want to have quality and there's that balance that's always difficult and the same thing with social media you know you're not going to get views unless you post regularly but you don't want to just turn into that coach that's like dumping a bunch of junk on there uh, to share you want to keep some value to uh, to your name and and show the that you you know what you're talking about as well so it's that the difficult balance um when you're trying to grow a business yeah and, and what is your business model like with Hammer Media? I mean, I have the luxury or the, <laughs> it's both good and bad, but I mean, I, I work part-time um, completely outside of sports. I work for a bank and was trained as a lawyer. So that, that can help me cover my rent. And it allows kind of Hammer Media to, for me to experiment a bit and see how I can grow it, where I can grow it. And there's not a, an urge to that, okay, this needs to be sustainable in six months or it's not going to go. I, you know, as I said, I've been doing it for more than a decade it keeps growing every year revenue keeps growing every year so that's um i i could just experiment a bit the what i I found though has been the the best and you know i want to develop a long-term approach 
and developing an audience that is not just you know person who comes by and likes and is gone that, that they're really invested in learning and the the voices we're bringing together um so we we've the last couple of years really grown the membership model where we have we have a lot of free content that gets people interested gets people talking but then we provide a more in-depth content to members where we do we have video lectures we have exercise library we have um you know hangouts and things like that where we can really add some extra value so we can get people interested with the free content and we don't want to exclude anyone either not a lot of coaches have budget to join membership things mm. so we're not excluding anyone but then if those people like the content and want to learn a bit more um you, you know we've got a, a in real deep library with um where you can go down several rabbit holes and <laughs> learn more about the topics going around on the site exactly and is it typically aimed towards coaches more or do you get a mix of even some athletes we get a lot more coaches there there are some athletes who are really tends to be more experienced athletes who are at the point in their career where they have a coach, but they're also have some influence over their program or they're, you know, they're, they're doing their own thing or they're being their own coach and are trying to explore what's out there. Um, there's not a whole lot of the beginning athletes. Um, although on the track and field side, we do have some more track and field specific content. So we will get some, some athletes there who would just want to learn more on the technical side and things like that. Yeah, it's amazing uh, how, you know, even like, I think so, in some circles, it's called like the prosumer. Um, you know, it's 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 people that aren't really maybe coaches or even even athletes, but they just love you know training or whatever the case may be, and they they kind of dive in. And, and that market seems to have been been growing a little bit more over the last few years. Have you seen some of that? Like, you know, where you get you get someone who's maybe in their 30s or 40s and and they're really interested in track or hammer or something it definitely i think and, and also i mean as i think social media has been great in, in sharing information but there's also kind of a there's still a desire for more in-depth information so i think a lot of people get interested in these various topics by seeing something on social media but you know after a while they're like i want to know a bit more i want to know behind like well where would i put that in the program how would i do that or what are the coaching points for that and those types of things are still um on social media there's some some people doing it really well but by and large there's only so much you can fit into a, a you know an instagram post or a twitter post yeah. and so i i think the more people get interested in these topics, the more that's also developing a kind of a parallel market for, okay, well, let's get in, get in more detail about these things like with Bondershuk stuff, for example, or Franz Bosch, or, you know, a lot of these coaches that are, um, it's hard to summarize in 140 characters. So. Yeah, exactly. Even, even though some of the exercises might look cool, it's, it's definitely tough to, to really see what's, what's the, you know, context and, and premise behind all these different exercises and methods and principles. So I, I, I uh, you know, I look up to guys like you because I, I appreciate more of the kind of long form content that I prefer like reading a, a book or a, an article than, uh, and scrolling through um, Instagram posts myself. So no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so why don't we actually dive into some of the, the training stuff a little bit here. And I, I'd actually like to start with the Bandarchuk system, periodization. Um, we, we typically have probably listeners who are, are tennis coaches, some strength and conditioning coaches as well, and, and maybe just eager tennis, tennis folks uh, that want to learn a little bit more. So 
maybe not going too, too detailed, but can you kind of share with us what, what the system is? It's, I've sort of adopted it myself in the sense um, that it's kind of a mix of, of that plus Dan Path's sort of general um, generational system, which I don't know if you're familiar with, like you have first generation, which is your, yeah. that's your event. And then you go down second generation is, you know, things that are kind of closer in, in, in nature, but they're not the actual activity. And, and we go down and, and down and until about fourth or fifth gen, which is activities that are really nothing like, um, you know, the main sporting actions, but more general in nature. So can you, can you kind of go through, you know, Bandarchik's system a little bit here? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are two, I think things will really set him apart in the, the training side. And one is how he classifies the exercises and thinks about you know, specificity. Um, he has a real good framework for that. And the second part is more the periodization than how he puts that all together into a plan. Um, I think the first part is most relevant for kind of skill coaches, sport coaches, SNCs, anyone. It's just understanding the whole universe of exercises and how, how you can classify them. And um, his approach, I find, is a great balance of theory and practice there are a lot of systems out there for classifying exercises and you can write you know whole dissertations about you know what category this could be or biomechanical breakdown of exercises and um he takes a much more higher level approach and says look you know we can nitpick about the details but in essence there are going to be four categories of things um there's a place for all four categories it's not that one's necessarily better than the other but understanding what category something goes in helps you understand what is a training and that can help you determine the priorities of training and how you structure training going on. So, I mean, he'll, the first category is competitive exercise. You know, that's, that's your sport. Um, you know, if a hammer thrower, that's going to be out there throwing hammers. If you're a tennis player, it's playing tennis. Uh, the second exercise, the second category are specific developmental exercises. That's where you break the sport down into parts. Um, so maybe it's, you know, trying to find a movement that's going to be more specific to a tennis serve or yeah. more specific to, you know, change of direction skills in tennis. It's really kind of breaking it down into its part, adding some overload so you can really emphasize it and get better at that part. And then the next category are specific preparatory exercises. Those are ones that are, you're going to be using the same muscles and energy systems as your sport, but it's not going to be looking like it. So these are going to be the typical weight room exercises, squats, you know, uh, things like that, where yes, you use your legs in tennis, you use your legs in the hammer throw, but a squat looks completely different than the game. Um, so you're strengthening the muscles you're using, but in a different way. And then the last category are general preparatory exercises. And that's where you're starting to work to different energy systems and things like that. So for a hammer thrower, where it's a, you know, very short sport, um, you know, that's where more circuit training and things like that will come in for us because those are training different energy systems. Um, you know, sometimes the same muscle, sometimes not, but you're starting to get further and further removed from the sport. And I mean, the reason he does this is because there's, he talks about a lot about transfer of training and, you know, first and foremost, the things that look like your sport are probably going to be the best bang for your buck. As far as transfer goes, you know, if you want to be a better tennis player, play a lot of tennis. Uh, if you're spending, you know, 10 hours a week in the gym and two hours a week on the court, it's probably not <laughs> maximizing your development. So the, the more something's in the competitive or the specific preparatory category, probably it's going to help out a bit more. And really, you're going to see a direct correlation between improvements in the exercise and improvements in your gameplay. But on the other hand, 
you know, like I said, there's a room for all those categories. If all you do is play tennis, you know, you see this all the time of the kids playing tennis, 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 but then they get injured and they can't get better. And there's not that well-rounded athlete. You need some of that general work in there as well. And you might not have a direct transfer as far as if I get better at a squat, I'm going to get better at tennis. Um, but you will notice maybe, okay, well, if I get better at this, I'm less injured, which allows me to play tennis longer mm. every day. And that those reps on the court then accumulate. So it's kind of a second degree benefit or, you know, one thing we see on the, the hammer throw side is, okay, well, the, you know, if we have very good circuits that are implemented with a you know, good thought process behind how we make them, we're going to increase our work capacity. And by increasing our work capacity, instead of 20 throws a day, we can take 30. Um, and that allows us to do more of the specific work. So we're building up a kind of a second degree of transfer. Um, but you have to really understand, okay, well, what are you trying to get out with that, each exercise? Like if you're trying to really get, you know, if you get direct transfer with the really general stuff, it's just not going to happen. So you have to really understand, well, what's the purpose of each of these categories? And then that plays into how you start programming and, and planning. Yeah, that's excellent. That's an excellent explanation. I think it's it's really thorough, but but to the point. And where where I think uh, you know a lot of coaches maybe get confused is you know what's and I've I've actually maybe maybe it's just me. I've been confused on this topic. It's you know what are the exercises like the for example? Okay, we know competitive exercise. You know that's easy. That's that's tennis. But even within that, you know there's tennis match play there's tennis you know hitting drills with a partner we call them live ball drills in tennis and there's basket or hand feeding drills like these are all different would, would those still be under that same category or would like a hand feed drill be more maybe specific developmental you know we can really like push the intensity for five shots give a lot of rest in between what are your what's your take on that I mean, in the end, I, to me, it doesn't matter that much. And mm. same thing in the hammer throw, we could say, okay, is the hammer throw as a competitive exercise only the 16 pound hammer? Or if you take a heavier hammer, is that, you know, start to become something different or the same? Or at what point does it shift from a competitive exercise to a specific developmental exercise? There, there are some gray areas. It's not clear cut, but for me, the main, main thing to keep an eye on is okay well how much time are you spending in each category is there a bit of a balance between the different things and what are you trying to accomplish with each one so um you know if, you, if you're trying to bring your whole game together with a bunch of you know feeding drills that's probably not going to work but if you're you're using the feeding drills to address more of a specific area you know like you're doing feeding drills to work with you know, a recovery step after the shot to get back to the middle or something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I would consider more a specific development exercise because the goal of that is you're trying to break down and get better at one element of it. Um, and then, you know, uh, other things, you maybe you're trying to put elements together and it might not be a full game or a full match uh, or a full rally, but if, you, if the intent of that is, okay, we're trying to bring these combined elements, bring them together, I would treat that more as a competitive exercise. So it's a matter of, I think for me, thinking about, are you really trying to bring things together or are you trying to isolate and overload one aspect to, to really emphasize that? Yeah. That, that's how I've kind of seen it over the years. It's like, this is, it is, you're still hitting, but it's not exactly the same because you're also taking out the perceptual component, you know, where there's, yeah. 
and there's not much, to, there's not as much decision making. You don't have to react to the ball. You, you kind of know where it's going. So, um, so yeah, I, I tend to think of that as more of like, yeah, maybe this is more of like the physical, a physical drill, like you mentioned, we're working on the recovery step, or maybe it's more of a technical drill, you know, we're working on, you know, preparation or whatever. So um, yeah, that's, that, that's pretty interesting. And for, for tennis, would you say that, you know, you mentioned the squat, a squat is, is definitely something that can help us in terms of leg strength, just general leg strength, you know, are these important factors you think in sports where there's, you know, there's so many hours that need to be put into, into being on the court. Cause that's a, that's a tough balance. I seem to have found we have athletes that are basically playing, you know, some of them are playing 30 tournaments a year. I think it can be, I mean, what you don't want to fall into, and this is what Bonnerchuk said too, even in the hammer throw, which is a very strength dominant event, the strongest guys are not the ones winning. You know, the, it's not that the Olympic champion can squat 10 kilos heavier than the silver medalist. You know, they're, they're all strong guys, but who's the strongest is not the one winning. And it's even more so in tennis where you have a lot more of the aerobic component uh, mixed in as well too. But, but there, that said, I think there is something, I mean, it's, it, these are long grueling matches, but it also is determined a lot by speed, strength, and power. Um, yeah. So you need to have a baseline of that. And again, if you're playing tournaments all the time too, that's starting to wear, wear people down. You know, you, you talk about the majors and stuff like that and athletes, they'll, they'll leave a few kilos less than when they started just because of the, the grind of it. And so keeping up muscle mass a bit, keeping up the strength levels, um, I think over the long term that can play uh, an important role um, just in, in keeping a stronger, uh, more reactive and healthy body. And I think maybe in that sense, you, you might do a little bit, we do more micro dosing, which is a topic you, you've actually spoken about uh, a fair bit. Uh, I do want to get into, cause it's really, it's, I've seen, I haven't seen your program, like a program of yours um, necessarily, but I've seen some programs that use this system, like Derek, Derek Evely. Um, I've seen some of his programs and I, I love the simplicity in the sense of, you know, it's tough because he's, he's also in the throws. So it's, it's a bit more of a closed sport versus, versus tennis, but it's really interesting how, okay, here's, you know, whether that it's in the prep phase or specific prep phase, it's like, okay, there's your competitive uh, exercise, which is your throws. The next category is going to be, um, you know, your specific developmental exercises. Here are the exercises, then your SPE, and here are the exercises, and it's all within one kind of training day or even sometimes a training session. Um, and he, he, it's really interesting because like for his weight room work, there's like two exercises. And then we see these elaborate kind of strength and conditioning programs where there's like eight or, you know, six to, to maybe 10 exercises, you know, like our, are we trying to hit too many? Like, is it enough to just have a couple of these exercises and then, you know, we don't need to fill in all these other gaps necessarily? I think so. I mean, you also talked about microdosing a bit earlier too, and I'll touch on that. But I think with Bonnerchuk's approach, I don't use that with all my athletes, but that was the way I train predominantly. And I, I do use that with some of my, my better athletes because I, I feel there are a lot of benefits in it. Um, 
with his approach, I think it came about partially because he, he felt that athletes at the same time had too much variation and too little variation. Day to day, they had a bit too much variation where they would have 10 exercises on Monday and it's leg day and they have 10 different leg exercises. The next day they'll have 10 upper body exercises and the next day, 10 core exercises. And every single day is a bit different. And you're throwing so much at the athlete that it's hard for the body to know what to adapt to. But over the long term, if you look at, you know, track and field is the very annual cycle. You know, we start training in September, October. If you look at September this year versus September next year versus September the year after, I think it'll the same thing year after year. There's no change. And so what he's done is taken it a bit where it's like, okay, day to day, we're going to do the same couple exercises every single day. Uh, We might Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and it's a low enough level. You can recover from it. So we're not going to go hundred percent squats. We're going to do a couple sets of squats, you know, 70, 75%, you know, a zone that is really inducive to developing power, but at the same time, very recoverable. So you can get out and throw a hammer with good quality the next day. And you're not sore completely all over. Um, so you choose those things, you do them over and over and you'll do them for, you know, maybe a month, maybe six weeks and until you stop getting better at them and until you've adapted to them. And then we're going to choose completely different exercises. So instead of squats, we might do step-ups. Um, mm. so in that sense, the day-to-day variability is less. It allows your body to adapt to it a bit better, but the month to month and year to year variability is much higher. Cause what we do this October could be completely different than what we do next October. So you're still giving the body a fresh stimulus and over the long term, you can keep adapting year after year after year. And at the center of all that too, is, is just back to the exercise categories. You got a little bit in there from every single category. Mm-hmm. And the focus is always going to be on the competitive exercise. You're not going to do something you need that general stuff, but you don't want to be doing the general stuff to the detriment of the specific stuff. So if your general circuits are just completely wearing you out and making it so you can't play tennis well, and you're developing bad habits on the court, then you're doing it wrong. You can have some small doses of that. You can adapt to it over time, but you still want to be able to be fresh to, to play tennis because playing tennis at 80% or throwing hammer at 80% is different than 100%. The perception is going to be completely different. Um, your awareness, all those things, your feeling of the body, you want to keep that quality of tennis as high as possible so that you can get even more specific adaptations from it yeah and and i think these 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 general exercises the way we've used it you know i've i've kind of stolen some of the circuits from from guys like like dan uh dan path and you know they're just body weight kind of general stuff where it's i I remember him saying that it basically he he was telling me it's vitamins you know it's it's your vitamins that you take a few times a week Um, exactly and when we do them, actually, you, you kind of, you feel better after, <laughs> you know, like you're not worn out, you're actually more energized um, and, and you feel more mobile and, and things like that. So uh, I think there's, there's massive value there. How would you apply this system though to, you know, sports like tennis or even, you know, American sports like basketball and hockey where the schedules are so, uh, you know, packed basically? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit difficult. And also, like you said, it's it's not a closed sport. It's more of an open sport, too. So you can't just say, I'm going to do this exercise. You need to have a bit more variability in there just because the game's variable. Like not any, no game is going to be the same. No point's going to be the same. Um, so you want to have a bit more flexibility in there. Um, for me, and you come back to Dan Pfaff, a, a lot of it is also, he comes 
his background is different, but he's come to a very similar approach in some ways to what Bonnerchuk has. And you look at his in-season programming, he'll typically have two or three templates for his sprinters. Um, I call three day rollover, for example, and you know, they're, they're targeting different areas of the sprinting. And it's just like, when you have time, you do day one and maybe you're traveling three days and you can't do the next workout. But when you land, you do day two mm-hmm. and you do day three, and then you go back to day one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Mm-hmm. And that's similar to Bonner Chuck. It's like, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a fixed schedule. It's just, okay. We set up these programs, you do them in the same order, but whether there's a one day break or two days after each other or maybe you have three or four days break um that you're just kind of repeating the process over and over and so i think it can be pretty adaptable to um sports where you have more inconsistent training the one thing is though i mean you the more consistent you are the more it helps um it comes back to the i was saying you want to do the same thing over and over so your body gets used to it and adapts to it. So you want to be able to have some some type of consistency as far as your, your training regularly. Um, but if there's, you know, it, it is more adaptable if the days you train might be different from week to week or things like that, but you still need to be consistent in getting the, getting the training sessions in. Yeah, I, I'm actually, I, I'm doing the rollover myself, my own training um i've been doing it on and off for a few years and i've restarted doing it i think um in the fall and i feel typically better because i'm playing tennis like random i don't know exactly when i'm going to be playing you know depending on uh, you know schedules and things like that so um and and how i'm going to react to tennis because for me tennis right now is like you know when i go and play one a couple hours it's a big stress like i i feel it i may not recover as quickly as i did when i was 20 years old or 25 years old. So, um, so then you kind of monitor, oh, I might need a day rest and then oh, I'll do this, this, um, this weight training day that I have scheduled. So I've, I've found that it's, it's, it's really beneficial. Uh, when do you know kind of, or, or when are you getting hints at when it's an appropriate time to switch the exercises or change the loading, you know? I mean, for in the hammer throw, again, it's a, more close skill sport and we have more measurable feedback. So for us, we, we can go out and see every single day, how far did we throw? And so we know, okay, are we adapting to something or not by, you know, what our direct results are, you, but you can't really get a, a reading like today I'm playing tennis at 92 and tomorrow it's 95 or <laughs> something like that. So yeah. it's a bit um, more difficult. I think part of it, is subjective and and that's athletes can actually help in that you can see okay how did you sleep how do you feel uh do you have sore muscles um you know things like that i think if your body's feeling fresh and ready to go like you know an athlete knows that and then the more experienced an athlete is the better they know that they know when they're ready to go um as opposed to you know you just wake up you can sometimes you can get 10 hours of sleep and you still feel tired um you know you you might randomly just get sore muscles even though the workout yesterday wasn't any harder and you know that's not a bad sign it just shows your body is really fighting to adapt at that point so you got to stick with it until you can get out and and adapt to it um so i, I think there, there are signs like that. And then you can also have some more objective measures. Um, like we, we use the actually quite a bit. We use the, uh, the serve, we monitor serve speed. 
yeah, something, something like that. You can monitor service speed. You can monitor bar speed in the weight room or things like that. They're not perfect correlations, but if you're repeating the same things over and over, um, you know, the body shape should go up and down together. So the, the, as long as you're not, I think people can get too much into a rabbit hole with data and collect data they're not using. But if you pick a couple of things and you're able to consistently measure them and it's not taking a lot of time away from your training and there's not a lot of friction in the technology, um, I think that'd be good. Like, so tennis serve is a great example of something you can, you're already measuring that and looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be some fluctuation day to day, no matter what. So yeah. you got to, you know, get rid of some of the noise, but if you see kind of that general trend up and, you know, for us, it's general trend up. And then after a while, you kind of hit a plateau. So if you feel like, okay, I'm doing better now, but I'm just, I'm stuck. I'm not getting to that next level. Then that's the time to change. What most people do though, and I think this is one of the flaws of a lot of training is most people change things when they're going bad. Um, and for a lot of athletes, that's actually the time you want to write it out. You know, your body's to use kind of the old super compensation model that, 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 that down part is not that things are going bad. That's just the body's natural adaptation process. You got to write out the curve until you get back up to the top. And, and there's some problems with, I think the old view set view and mindset of adaptation, but it, that concept I think generally applies where, um, you know, when you don't need to change things when you're at the bottom, you normally need to change things to the top because that means you've done your job. You've gotten where you want to be. Yeah. Now you need to give the body a new challenge. Mm. That's, that's, that's interesting. And I think we sometimes forget that we we're like, ah, oh, we're, we're down here. What's going on. We coaches start panic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's tougher. It's tough to explain it to the athlete though, because they want to see improvement results, success, yeah. I mean, that being said, I mean, if you, if you are down and you stay down for a long time, that there could also be overtraining. That could be other things. So it's, it's not that you don't ever want to change things if things are going bad. I think too often we just panic, you know, we have one or two bad days and we think, Oh, you know, I got to change something it, often. If it's, you know, if it's just a temporary little down that just write it out and you'll adapt to it and, and get better. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, can you talk a little bit about micro dosing you had mentioned, cause I know you, you're pretty, um, in tune with this topic. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, it's not just for Bondershuk stuff, but I use that quite a bit in general. Um, like we want to get, there's a, a lot of things we want to do in training. And if we try and have this huge stimulus for every single area of training, there's just not enough time there. And, and again, it starts taking away from the thing you ma- that matters the most. Um, so playing tennis for you. So you can get a lot done with a little, like even sprint and speed work. If you do a couple reps of high intensity work, there's a pretty, um, the stimulus that it gives there is pretty solid and you don't need to have an hour long sprint session to get faster in, you know, 10, 15 minutes, a couple of times a week can already give most athletes enough stimulus. It's not like we're talking about Olympic sprinters who really need to focus on that. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, just having a little consistent stimulus is better than having one really hard sprint session a week that just wrecks you. So you can't train in the next couple of days. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that kind of slow and steady approach, um, can be beneficial. And, um, it, it, as I said, it, for athletes too, it, it leaves you motivated. It leaves you feeling better physically and ready to go the next day, which um, I think mentally also really helps you. I, a lot of athletes have that kind of, you know, they want to be that the, they want to leave 
being carried out of the gym sometimes you get athletes like that where they just want to they want that struggle they want that pain they you know they want to vomit at the end of the workout so with those athletes it can be a bit of a mindset change to help them realize you know if you leave feeling good that's not bad <laughs> that means you're going to have a better session tomorrow um so you give them just enough to get better but not more and uh but and I find for the majority of athletes, once they start doing that a bit and feeling that they're, they, they buy in. Um, but it can be, it can be a sell sometimes, especially that I work with a lot of rugby athletes as well. And they really, you know, they're used to tolerating pain. That's the whole, <laughs> that's the sport. And same thing in tennis, you have the, some athletes that they just love getting into those deep sets and getting into those dark places. Um, so it's, it could be a sell to some athletes, but I think over the long term, they, they see the results and they can buy in and you can, you can do, you can do a lot and you don't need as much stimulus as you often think you do to, to make some gains. Yeah. And I think you mentioned it even in tennis, you know, we, we see a lot of athletes that love grinding sessions, you know, where they're constantly, you know, doing different movement drills and, and really getting the heart rate up and, uh, but we see we see actually that at the top of the game, yeah, they have long matches, of course, and sometimes long rallies, but rallies have kind of come down a little bit. And um, the quality of your shots, the quality of your movements, that seems to be kind of where, you know, the most importance needs to be placed because that's where the top players are, you know, are really thriving. So. Yeah, and, and the difference makers are often those, like to, to bring it back to rugby, for example, like we, we could have a really long, grueling two, three hour session and it's a much more aerobic based, but you know, what, what wins the game is not someone who can go medium speed for the full 80 minutes. What wins the game are those people who can have those bursts of really high speed when it matters. And so those long sessions, often you, you lose a bit of quality for the volume you're chasing and you know, that, that might be that little extra edge that's going to be the, the game winner. That might be the what that little extra speed that gets you the position to hit, the, you know, the, uh, the baseline shot or the, whatever it is, that, that quality element can often get lost in these long, long growing sessions. I mean, don't get me wrong. You need to have endurance. You need to have all these other aspects, but you can also get endurance by lots of short sessions, short high intensity sessions um, can, can get you that. And even, you know, being it forces you, I think, with microdosing to be much more structured in your session planning. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, microdosing, it can be a 20 minute session, but even like for, for some athletes, an hour session is micro. Uh, if they're work, used to working out three or four hours, an hour can be a short session for them. And you really, if you really want to go through the checklist of what you need for your game, you have to be very efficient in how you plan that. And it can be a pretty high intense session for 45 minutes or an hour because you're keeping the heart rate up the whole time. If you look at a four-hour session, sometimes half the time you're standing around between balls. Um, you know, if you put a lot of thought into it and say, "Look, this is going to be high intense. Um, this uh, this drill we're doing for 10 to 15 minutes is going to be more speed based. This drill is going to be more strength based. This and that, and really put into that time into the session plan." It, forces you to be more focused just because you can't do everything you have to start to prioritize what am i going to do how am i going to get the most out of that time how do the elements fit together how does one lead into the next and it can take your session plan to another level just by forcing you to be more focused yeah i remember the first time i really opened my eyes was i was a player and my coach had recorded one of my my matches but he had uh, and it was a long match it was like a two and a half hour three hour match 
but he had only recorded the actual playing time. And it was only like 27 minutes, <laughs> you know, I was like, I'm only playing for, I mean, it was a three hour match, but yeah, there's a lot of, you know, time between points, changeovers, bathroom break, you know, things yeah. of that nature. So if you, if you even just think about that, you're like, well, in a one hour practice session, how much actual playing time can we get? We can, at times we can, we can actually get maybe 30 minutes of actual playing time in that, in that one hour block. It's as, as much as a three hour, three set match. So, uh, you know, that, that just, um, it, it was an interesting point there, but how would you, uh, I'm curious, how would you organize a kind of general, uh, prep phase for tennis? Like I, I always have this debate with coaches and even myself in my own head, um, you know, cause our preseason is like typically six weeks, six to eight weeks, you know? And what guys do is they finish the season and maybe take a week, two off, and then right away they're back hitting tennis balls at full pace, uh, you know, first week into preseason. Whereas I think maybe, you know, we're playing so much during the year. Maybe we need a little bit of this general work early on uh, or just some more like athletic work. What are your thoughts on that? I think I, I agree. I think in, in track and field, we, we have the luxury, we can have a much longer preseason and we can also do a little bit of everything at all times. So even during the season, we're able to maintain our strength and the general stuff as well. So, um, you know, what my programming looks like in the off season is very similar to what it looks like in the in season. We just might have more rest days or travel days and things built mm -hmm. in. Um, but I, I would definitely say the, the um, general work should be a priority, not necessarily because you need to have that traditional general to specific buildup. I'm normally against that mindset because look, you're only one or two weeks out from when you were in your top shape of your life. You know, that's also a good time to be, be playing some tennis. It's nothing wrong with that. And same thing with hammer throwing to say, okay, we were in our best shape of our life. We take two weeks break and now we're not going to do a touch a hammer again for, for, eight weeks that to me is a bit preposterous that's a really good time to to work on the technical side as well because you're in, in the prime shape but at the same time in tennis especially you might have neglected some of those other things for eight to ten months mm. um and you might not have another chance once the season starts to do those so you definitely need to tilt the scales more towards the general side because that might be the only time you can get a dose of that throughout the year um I think it's important to play tennis all the time or, or your own sport. If you completely step away from that, that's um, it's hard to connect the dots later. And so I I'm generally don't like block periodization as much because it's, it's the planning for the season is okay. We do only general right now. And then we do only, um, you know, preparatory stuff. And then we do only specific stuff. And if you build things up in these silos, sometimes it's hard to make the pieces go together. Yeah. So I like having that specific component there but you know instead of 80 percent specific and 20 percent general maybe you flip it so it's 80 percent general and 20 percent specific and address those things you're not going to have time on throughout the rest of the year and that means adding in new movement patterns instead of just the same exact movement patterns you're doing do things that are maybe less relevant to tennis but you're engaging different muscles um, you're becoming a better athlete overall i mean maybe it's even you know playing basketball or doing things removed from the sport just to build up a stronger repertoire of movement skills um 
yeah. doing some more strength-based stuff where, yeah, it's going to take a little bit more time to recover from, but now you have that time to recover. Um, so putting that stuff in and doing those types of things where it might be hard to do these things on the road, might be hard to do these things in different settings. So now we have our gym, we're not traveling. Let's get them in now while we have a chance. Yeah. Yeah. We, we typically, you know, I never tell athletes to stop playing tennis, um, for any extended period of time. We're always hitting, but I think having just maybe some of these tennis sessions that are like lighter, um, and less movement based. Actually, I actually think that during the preseason and general prep phase, you should be hitting quite a bit. Um, but maybe lighter hitting, you know, maybe just feeling the ball a little bit more, working on timing and rhythm and things like that, and saving the the kind of higher intensity movement stuff. That's for- a great idea. And then in making it more fun too. So it's less competitive that you're just okay, finding some more tennis-based stuff that can be more games but not games in the sense of competition games but uh, you know other types of challenges and one thing too is I always I mean the really dedicated motivated athletes you're not going to be able to get them to take a break from tennis they want to have a racket in their hand like and if you try to make them not play you're just going to run into a losing battle and same thing in the hammer like I I find uh, like the, the people want to throw they want to have the imp in their hand that's how they make the connection that this is what i'm training for so having it in there in some capacity could be very different exercises but at least you have the racket in your hand um and that's a that's an important component even if it's just a small component totally uh okay cool uh let's i wanted to move on just i know we've been chatting about this for a while but it's super interesting and uh very relevant but on the topic of exercises um, you know, I've seen you guys you, yourself, actually, you have some really cool videos on YouTube, um, and just in track and field circles, especially in Europe where you're, you guys are using more, you know, kind of bodybuilding type of circuits. I don't mean bodybuilding in the same, in the sense, like you're trying to, to grow your biceps or anything like that, but, um, uh, more, you know, using weight plates and even barbells and things like that to, work the trunk in different ways or do different twisting exercises and, and stuff like that. Where did that come from? And where is it? What's the relevance there for you? We do a lot of circuits on the one hand, we, for example, core training and stuff, we need core strength in the hammer. However you define core or trunk based or whatever you want to call it. Um, you need that, but at the same time, we don't want to spend a huge chunk of training doing that. So we typically turn it into circuits Um on one side it's faster and the second side it's our one chance to develop work capacity and endurance a little bit otherwise we're not getting that component in training so we do a lot of circuit-based stuff on the auxiliary work um our core circuits we typically you know for hammer throwers we have a template where you know what, what are the elements of the trunk well you have you know kind of abdominal flexion exercises you have back exercises you have frontal plane exercises which are often neglected so side to side movements side bends things like that and rotational elements and you know if we if we can get one of each of those into a circuit we're pretty we're covering the trunk from from all different angles and obviously if you can combine those that's even better um but so typically for our our core circuits we'll do an ab a back a twist and a frontal plane exercise mm. um you know, then we also add in, you know, we, we can add, we can do circuits with legs more. Um, we do a lot more on the, the rugby side. 
Uh, Frank Gambetta's got a great leg circuit. We'll do just body weight. We'll do squats, lunges, you kind of jump step ups and jump squats. So you get a little bit of plyometrics and stuff in there too. Uh, again, it's body weight based, but it, it's a chance to develop leg strength in a way that's also developing work capacity. Um, and in a way that's it's a bit recoverable, but you still have a very potent stimulus from it. So um, we're, we're big fans of the, um, you can do a lot, even if there's not a lot of heavy weight, <laughs> put it that way. And uh, you just got to think about it. It's more than just making the athlete tired. It's about thinking about what exercises you're putting together. Um, are you training the different areas you want to train or is it just doing the same thing over and over? Uh, if you're doing, you know, just a core circuit where it's, hundred variations of sit-ups you're getting to the point where if you can do something a hundred times it's probably not that strong of a stimulus um so each exercise in the circuit should be addressing something a little bit different so it's challenging but you know it's still at a point where you can get a stimulus from it and um i lost my train of thought there but yeah i think in the circuit design just thinking about how how you can get complementary exercises involved um, to help build that up. But if you do that right, you don't need a heavy load on your back to, yeah. to get stronger. Absolutely. Uh, we've, we've been implementing a lot more of these sort of like, you know, holding a, a plate above your head, doing side bends, doing like twist and side bends. And I like one, I think you were doing where you're basically like, almost like you're throwing the plate kind of behind you a little bit and, and, I guess the trunk is just, it's, it's, for me, it looks like it's, it's performing its role in a more integrative manner, you know, a little bit more of what you're going to see in, in sport versus just plank or, or something of that nature, which maybe there, there's some value in, in those as well for at different periods, just as some general work, but um, maybe we're missing the boat a bit in terms of kind of transfer um, in terms of this, this core training. Well, I definitely think, and the, my influence here comes as much from Vern Gambetta as it does from, from Bonnerchuk, but you know, you need to think about training in terms of coordination and mm. no muscle works in isolation. So why are we, you know, going to do leg curls in the gym or leg extensions or, you know, these very isolated machine-based exercises, they might get an individual muscle stronger, but that muscle never works on its own. It's always working with something else. And even if you talk about the core or the trunk, you know, it's not your abdominal muscles. It's not your back muscles. Like if you're doing a tennis serve, your core is, it's that whole hip to shoulder sling that's being involved, you know, all the way up past the shoulder, all the way up to the hand. So you, you really need to involve like the, a really strong core is not just one muscle. It's that, that whole stretch reflex, uh, which is another thing that gets neglected from, you know, if you're just doing planks, um, there's not that eccentric component there's not that stretch reflex component there's not these other ways it's not the muscles are not just working concentrically um trying to think about how the mu muscle can function in different phases of movement different um ways it fires and then also in the coordination patterns and in the just how the body is moving so the more you can get that involved um the better so we do a lot a lot of work like that where it's thinking about movement over just the muscles as, as Fern would put it it's just, you know train movements not muscles and i think that's a much better way to do the core training than just the traditional approach and what about uh, you know using these sorts of circuits for you know shoulder exercises or um arm exercises i know we don't do a ton of it but recently you know i've implemented just here and there more bicep 
work and tricep work, not a lot in shoulder work. And it's actually uh, like athletes have been reporting that, you know, their elbows feel really good. Their shoulders feel really good. I mean, I'm not talking about a lot. I'm talking about a couple sets, you know, maybe a couple of times a week of these, these sorts of exercises, but maybe there's some structural adaptations that are just keeping things healthy. You know, what are, what are your thoughts there? I, I definitely think so. And I, we've done, I mean, I used to be even on something like curls, I would never do bicep exercises or something. Um, especially as a hammer thrower, we're, we're holding on to the implement with our upper body, but the power is not coming from the upper body. The power is coming more from the torso and the legs. So we never trained that, but I I've started to train more now that I've worked with the rugby, just because we, we added it in just because they like to do curls yes. and they like to, have, <laughs> they like to have big arms, well, but like to do curls. So <laughs> you might as well put them in and make them feel good. <laughs> exactly. So I think there's that one component where, you know, you're not doing an hour of curls and bodybuilding. You're not going to start to look like a bodybuilder, but you know, a little bit here and there to get some variety can be helpful. And, and even then I try to combine or make it a little bit more challenging. So instead of just doing curls, we'll do a curl into a press, you know, mm -hmm. with a dumbbell or something. So you, you can add in some extra movements. You're, you're working then basically two movements in one. So you can get a lot more done. And again, with a shorter three sets, um, in a couple of minutes, you're done and you've got two exercises done instead of one. Mm -hmm. um, so thinking about how maybe you can combine some of those or even, um, yeah, just thinking about how you can combine stuff and make it a little, maybe a little bit more challenging or involving not just one, but two, two muscles or two movements can, can get more bang for your buck. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. I, I got to give that a try. Definitely combining some of these movements. It's, it's pretty interesting. We're doing kind of some where we're, you know, we're doing twisting types of, of, uh, of stuff for, for, uh, biceps and triceps just to kind of, uh, you know, kind of, it kind of resembles a bit more of like the pattern of pronation and extension in, in a tennis serve, but, um, it's not super specific by any means, but I think there's some relevance in terms of just also like tissue quality. Maybe you're just getting a little bit of, better tissue adaptation in, in those areas and that's kind of helping you you uh not prevent but maybe mitigate some some injury or just some little niggles here and there especially in a sport where in, in rugby we find this too over the course of a season players lose a lot of weight keeping on um, some muscle is difficult obviously you don't want to be big for the sake of being big because then you're carrying around more weight which has a metabolic cost but um there's a value in a bit of that bodybuilding type of stuff too, just to not to get bigger, but to be able to maintain your current weight and your current, you know, muscle mass, because that has a structural element as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, tennis is a sport where you don't want to be big by any, by any means, but anytime guys go away, just they'll go for a four week tour. They come back, they're like five to 10 pounds lighter. Like it's just because of the sheer amount of tennis that they're playing in, in tournaments. So, um, all right, Martin, last little topic here. I'd love to get your thoughts on, I know you're busy, so you got lots going on, but this is something where I, I know you got a lot of info on med, med ball training. Um, I actually have a book beside me. It's called uh, Medicine Ball Medicine Ball Training <laughs> by Zoltan. <laughs> it's an old book. I don't know if you, you've seen this one before, but no. 
that he's a, I think he's Romanian or Hungarian. I, I, I can't remember. It's from like the sixties or seventies. It was republished in the nineties or, um, but anyway, it's, it's interesting because like three quarters of the book is non-throwing med, med ball exercises, you know? So it's like kind of what we were talking about with, with the weight plates, but, you know, doing various different exercises, doing lunges and reaches with the ball, um, things like that, where I've actually seen you and Vern do, do some of that stuff as well. And we've been doing it just as circuits, sometimes as a warm up before training, um, or hitting the court, sometimes as kind of a recovery, sometimes to prep for kind of the higher intensity med ball stuff we're doing. But I've, I, I see a lot of value in, in this type of stuff, you know, using the med ball as kind of, you can adjust the lever lengths and things like that. What are your, what's your take there? I think, um, on the one thing it's, it's a great way to overload some basic movement patterns. So lunges or, mm -hmm. um, rotational things. It's great. You have something in the hand and it can help orient your body too. Um, so I think that's, uh, can be very beneficial. I think that uh, med, med balls are probably one of the most versatile tools we have as well, because you can you can do low intensity stuff, you can do high intensity stuff, you can do base stuff, you can do more isolated stuff, uh, almost anything. I think traditionally where some people get turned off of med ball training or where med, med ball training is done wrong is where you just, it's really easy to fall into the routine of just doing ab exercises for sets of 10 or 20 and mm -hmm. then you start going through the motion and there i think you're, you're neglecting what the med ball does the best and and things like throwing or catches and and throws i think are a really great use of med ball just because that's something you can do special with them you can also do twists with a five pound plate it doesn't have to be a ball you can yeah. put anything in your hand but with a ball you can really get that ballistic element which brings intent and if you're trying to throw far that automatically brings focus and it's really hard to go through the motions um so you you can bring a lot more focus into training but that being said we also use it for um without throwing there there's some great ways to do it but you just need to be creative so that you're not just falling into the um the routine of going through the motions that you really still have intent and there you know, if you're not releasing it, still thinking about, okay, what movements you're trying to do, maybe there's a balance element to it. And that's what brings the intent and focus to it. Maybe there's, um, you know, you're, you're using the, in the hand, the med ball in the hand to think about length, and then that's already switching the athlete on. So trying to think about ways to keep athletes focused instead of just going through the motions, because that's where I see the med ball training gone wrong is where just people try to go high volume, high reps, but when there's no intent in the movement and you might as well just skip that part of training because like I was saying earlier, if you can do hundred reps of something, you're probably not doing it hard enough to create any, any adaptation that's going to be relevant. Absolutely. I think the other side of the coin is people using med balls only for max intense stuff and like being super violent. I think you had written an article about this where, and, and you're just talking about it now where, you know, kind of catch throw kind of stuff where you can't really, you can't do it at max effort, uh, but there's massive benefits to it, right? Like catch throw. I, I, I kind of see it a bit. It's not plyometric, but it's, it's, you know, more similar to like a light, you know, plyo, like a rudiment series or something like that. There, there is more stretch shortening cycle. There is more 
you know. What is uh, a bit? I mean, I think with med balls too, the, the people that use the throwing part of it, they focus so much on the ballistic element, the release, whereas there's a huge benefit in catching it. And we almost normally we throw it and then someone rolls it back to you or um you know that catching part that's the eccentric part you know you have to catch stop it and to do that effectively let's say you're doing a catching on the side you have to have core stability and trunk stiffness otherwise you're just gonna fall over or lean forward so to be able to keep a good posture while you're catching it um by necessity you have to have good posture so it's training that good posture it doesn't have to be max uh you know you, you almost you don't want to have a lot of people in other eras, they take the heaviest med ball there is. You can do a lot with a three or four kilo med ball, even for real strong hammer throwers, um, just because it forces you into that posture a bit without maximum velocity, without maximum weight being used or anything like that. You can get a lot of good adaptations from it. And the more I use med balls, the more I go towards more of those catching type exercises than throwing. But still with the catching, that's something... Yeah, it's a, it's a unique thing the med ball can do. You're not going to throw plates at someone and have them catch it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it, 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 you can get the most out of it. And it's no matter what you're, you're doing in training, I think what you're doing a kettlebell or, or plates or a barbell or a racket or whatever, thinking about, you know, is this the best tool for the, the exercise? And so I think that's um, one thing you need to ask yourself. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. This, this catching element is is really important, you know, to work on this eccentric phase. And I, I really like that. Uh, Martin, and, and back to the plyometric point too, I think if you get too heavy with the med ball and you're doing a catch and throw, it's no longer stretch shortening because it's so heavy. You have to break it so much and then it has to be much more of a strength action to move it forward. If you keep the balls light, um, it's enough of an overload where it's a bit more challenging and you have to strengthen the movement, but it's not so much an overload that the, the reaction times are so slow that it's not stretch shortening. So you can kind of, you can find that middle ground where it's still stretch shortening, but it's a little bit, um, a little bit more overloaded. So you can develop it a bit more. It's the same thing. Like if you do a drop jump, you know, there, there's that point where the ground contact times become so long, it's less relevant. So you got to try and find, okay, well, what's the weight of the med ball where I can still have it be reactive, um, but you're overloading at the same time. And, and to listeners, interesting to note that hammer throwers who are exponentially stronger than tennis players are using only a three or four kilo med ball to do this stuff. Um, you know, I always prescribe like two, max three for really strong guys um, on the kilo side. So that's, you know, instead of like a eight to 10 pound ball, we're talking about like a, a four to six pound um, that we're using. So um martin i think i don't want to take up well, I'd, I'd love to take up more of your time but i know <laughs> i know you've got stuff to do and and um co athletes to coach and and a website to to manage so uh where can people find out a little bit more about you know hammer media yourself what you do all that good stuff yeah, I mean, best is just to check us out online. Uh, the website is hammermedia.com. That's spelled a bit differently. That's hmmrmedia.com. Um, same with uh, Twitter and Instagram. We're on there at hmmrmedia. Um, go there. You'll find the podcasts, the articles, all that kind of stuff. And as mentioned, if you're interested, uh, become a member. There's lots of resources up there. We've got some med ball 
basic med ball video for members where we kind of walk through some some of the different circuits and stuff we have but also then more advanced ones we we break down okay well, how do you add in these eccentric components and and make it more reactive um with some ideas for that as well so if people are looking on the specific side but then also we have more general content up there as well looking at strength conditioning and speed training and, and topics like that so I'd definitely encourage people to check it out and feel free to reach out to me if you guys have any questions yeah absolutely and i think yeah, you have some awesome few youtube clips that are really good as well um i don't know if that's on your personal account or if that's hammer media as well but i'm sure you can find it if you if you type in your name so uh, i really appreciate you doing this this was this was awesome i, I know i'm going to take a bunch of notes and, and re-listen to this and um yeah hopefully we can do it again yeah thank you